Welcome to the Come Follow Me Made Easier podcast by Cedar Fort. This week, we have the opportunity to study Genesis 5 and Moses 6 with our teacher, Sam Castor. Sam is the author of the book, Zion Rising, which is coming out in May of this year. As you listen to Sam, you can't help but catch his enthusiasm and love for this topic of Enoch and his city, Zion. Sam wants to help us to be able to learn some of the important lessons that Enoch learned in his encounter with God. And in fact, Sam emphasizes a process that he refers to as a personal restorative awakening through Christ, in which we learn to see ourselves as Christ sees us. It is interesting that Moses, Abraham, and Enoch all have a similar experience where they're shown in vision the infinite and omnipresent, omnipotent works of God, and each of them, as a result, feel incredibly inadequate to the task that the Lord is calling them to do. But through their experience, they also develop a very intimate relationship with the Lord as he reveals to them how he sees them. Sam will help us to be able to walk through that same process ourselves and to come to be able to erase some of the negative uh, stories that we might have been telling ourselves about ourselves and about our inadequacies and help us to regain a clearer vision of who we might have been in the pre-mortal world and who it is the Lord would have us be now. I know you're going to love listening to Sam as he teaches us about these important principles. And again, we thank you so much for tuning in each week to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me Made Easier podcast. Please be sure to leave your comments in the section below. And also please address any specific questions you might have for us. Thank you so much. To the Come Follow Me lesson on Genesis 5, Moses 6, Enoch and Zion for the New Testament here in the year 2022. This is just part one, and I am thrilled to discuss Enoch and his city. I'm Sam Castor, and we could spend hours on this topic, I'm sure. But to give you a little bit of perspective into who I am and my own perspective on Enoch and Zion, I wanted to share a little bit of background. First of all, I have had a professional course in what Zion is not. I have had an amazing career and loved those I've worked with. I had worked in Washington, D.C. after going to law school. I worked for a U.S. senator. I worked under the uh, two different U.S. presidents in the Office of Science and Technology Policy. And then I spent over a decade at a multi-billion dollar tech company here in Nevada. I've had an amazing career. I've also found that at times I have been distracted. And those amazing people I work with as well, whenever we sought the dust of Babylon, we closed our hearts off to the gold of heaven above. In 2019, I had several dreams and started to ask myself, how can I build Zion now in my own heart, in my family, and in my community around me? How can I prepare for what's coming? And so I started to study Enoch and Zion and how Christ restored them and helped them become who they were meant to become. If we were in a virtual setting, you would see how in excited I am to talk about these things. And it would be the perfect scenario for us to be able, or perfect venue for us to be able to have gospel-based discussions. We know that the best lessons are discussion-based, where all are given an opportunity to speak. Christ tells us that when all speak, all are edified with all in DNC 88, 122. 
And if we were able to do that here in this virtual setting, it would be a thrill for me. Unfortunately, we're limited to, with the technology that we have, but if you do have questions or comments or thoughts, I would love you to post them in the string below. And I promise to get back to you on each one of them. When you're teaching this lesson in your church environment or in your home, I would suggest that you follow that same discussion-based platform. One of the best ways to inspire discussion is to ask inspirational questions, questions that allow the spirit to provide the answer, not just the teacher. To cultivate an environment where people want to contribute, be grateful when others give their thoughts, ideas, or, or ask their own questions. Give thanks for those sharing their energy and their and being vulnerable with what, how they feel and what they think about what, what is going on in these doctrinal discussions. Lastly, be sure to have the spirit be your guide. You can never cover everything, especially in these chapters. They are just too doctrinally thick. There's too much here for us to spend time on. So ensuring that the spirit leads you down a path to address those things that will help the individuals in your classroom setting come closer to Christ is the best way to ensure that a classroom discussion is edifying and helps us become united as we build Zion together. Here are just a few inspirational question suggestions. Why are we agents unto ourselves? Why is that important? Why and when does God send prophets and seers? Why Enoch? Why does the Lord teach Enoch of hearts, ears, and eyes? How and why does Satan attack our hearts? Our hearts. How are Enoch and Melchizedek similar and dissimilar? What about Enoch and Alma? Alma 13 has a great discussion on some similarities and an invitation for us to become more like Melchizedek and use the same priesthood that all three of them have been able to use to build Zion communities. Why was Enoch's message faith and repentance? And why is that central to the gospel of Jesus Christ? You can compare Alma 22 verse 14. And last, lastly, how can we build Zion now? And what and who are here to help us do so? I believe after studying Zion that it's up to us to receive it. It's up to us to create it. It's just a matter of how quickly we're willing to expand our hearts and connect them with each other to be able to receive it from heaven above. And so let's talk about some of the truths that help us do that that are discussed in Genesis 5 and Moses 6. There are three doctrinal, th three doctrinal themes I would like to address today. First, Enoch's chapters discuss at length the plan of salvation. He, he addresses foreordination and agency, the creation of the earth as heaven's footstool below, the fall and spiritual death of mankind as we came down here below, and Christ's atonement to help us rise back up to the heavens. Second, there is a path for us to return to heaven. We need to be reborn into the kingdom of God. That includes a restoration of our hearts, ears, and eyes. And there's examples in these chapters of Adam being baptized and quickened, and of Enoch also being quickened and personally restored as a seer. Lastly, I'd like to discuss the power of God's word. Enoch raises this idea of a book of remembrance and ties it to the power of the priesthood in Moses 6, 5 through 7. He also discusses that in verse 46. The book of remembrance is important, and I'd like to discuss why and how we can apply that here and now. He also discusses how priesthood power is both creative and destructive, and all focused on helping save God's children back in the kingdom of heaven. To understand how Enoch did this and his role 
in the history of the world at this time, it's helpful to understand his genealogy, where he came from on earth, as well as from heaven. The lineage of Enoch is very clear in Genesis 5, verses 1 through 20. It lays out how Enoch is the seventh generation from Adam, or some refer to him as the seventh son of Adam, meaning generationally seven steps down. The number seven symbolic, and it's a symbol of Zion, of perfection, of completeness. It's not just happenstance that he was seventh. We also know that Enoch was raised by his father, Jared, to be a preacher of righteousness, along with the other men that were called of the Lord to be <clears throat> prophets and seers and revelators at that time. All of them were preachers of righteousness, according to Moses 6.23. And Enoch had great influence on his own family. His son, Methuselah, became a prophet, and his grandson, Noah, became an instrumental prophet in helping save others and bring others to Christ as well. Genesis 5 doesn't talk at length about him. It's almost as if Enoch has been erased from the history of the records that we have because of how incredible his journey is where he translates an entire city up to heaven. It's almost as if we know more about his relatives than we, knew, we, we do about him. But we do know that Enoch was a friend of Christ and Enoch has an important role to play in the history of the earth as we conclude it here before Christ comes again. We'll get into that as well. As Enoch tells his story in Moses 6, he starts off with Adam's history. And then it's interesting. This chapter can be a little confusing for people who don't understand it. I've read it several times, and it's important to understand some of the road signs that help you understand what he's talking about and when and why. So he starts off with Adam's history in verses 1 through 25. And then in 26 through 36, Enoch talks about his own awakening his own personal restoration with Christ. Then in 37 through 52, those verses talk about Enoch's preaching to those wicked generations that were needing to be reminded of their relationship with heaven and their role here on earth. And then he has a flashback where he comes back to Adam's history and talks about how Adam was baptized and they need to be baptized too. I wonder if one of the reasons why Enoch has a flashback here is because Enoch, once he became a seer, could see past, present, and future. He could understand things not only as they were, but as they what as they were right then, but also what they were before and what they were going to become. Can you imagine that? Being able to look at someone like Enoch could and see who they were, what they were before, and what they were meant to become. It's a very powerful, powerful perspective. And I think it's something that informs why Enoch wrote his story and his history the way he did, with this flashback and these interlaced uh, histories. In discussing the plan of salvation, Enoch talks about how the creation of the earth is heaven's footstool. Before men were in the flesh, they were with God up above, and they were sent down below, and they remained agents unto themselves, free to create with their hearts to choose who they would serve here below, even after the fall, and how Christ's atonement would help them become who they were meant to become. The fall is an interesting point here as well. And Enoch spends some time on it in his discussions and his teachings with those he's preaching to. I think it's helpful to understand some of the traditions around the fall. The Jewish rabbis that maintain the tradition of Adam and Eve, one in particular, Rabbi Shimon Absdorf, talks about how when Adam and Eve fell, they didn't just get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Instead, when God comes to Adam and says, Adam, where art thou? In Hebrew, 
that word was ayaka. And it didn't mean where are you located ge geographically. Ayaka in Hebrew means where is your light? Adam and Eve lost light when they ate the fruit, light and height. In fact, Adam and Eve talk about how in some scriptures, they talk about how after they ate the fruit, they lament to God that they can no longer see the brightness within, that they used to be able to be filled with light and see each other. But after they ate the fruit, that brightness within was gone. Some scriptures even suggest that when Adam and Eve were first created, they were so glorious and so powerful that the angels trembled in their presence. But after they ate the fruit, Adam and Eve trembled in the presence of the angels. We lost Shekinah, or holy fire, as that word is used in Hebrew, when we fell. Joseph Smith taught that the earth itself also fell as a scroll from heaven literally moved from its celestial plane. That separation from our heavenly parents, that loss of light, that loss of connection with heaven was so traumatic, it was described as spiritual death. Our death led to a need to be reborn into God's kingdom and raised back to heaven above. It also created a significant gap for darkness to be able to persuade us that we weren't really who we used to be up in heaven above. In fact, that gap created so much darkness that Satan began to rage in the hearts of the children of men. And when Enoch is called as a prophet, Christ comes to him and says, I am angry with this people. And my fierce anger is kindled against them for their hearts have waxed hard and their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes cannot see afar off. They have gone astray, denied me, sought their own counsels in the dark, devised murder and have not kept the commandments which I gave unto Adam. By their oaths, they have brought upon themselves death and a hell and a hell I have prepared for them if they repent not. Can you imagine this just for a second? Here we have this amazing scene where God has created the earth. He's planned out what the salvation of men might be with this plan of salvation, how Christ can heal the gap and help them return to heaven. He's sat down with them and helped them develop gifts and talents and sent them down foreordained to be able to work wonderful things in his name. And yet the children of men, the children of Adam and Eve, choose murder, darkness, hatred, and lies. And as a result, Christ's anger is kindled against his children because their hearts have waxed hard, their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes cannot see far off. That gap persisted because of Satan's temptations and because of the choices of the children of men. As a result, Satan continued to rage in the hearts of those children of men. And in Moses 6.15, it says that in those days, Satan had great dominion among men and raged in their hearts. And from thenceforth came wars and bloodshed. And a man's hand was against his own brother and administering death because of secret work seeking for power. Instead of seeking heaven above, men were squabbling over the dust of the earth below. Behold, Satan hath come among the children of men and tempteth them to worship him. And men have become carnal, sensual, and devilish and are shut out from the presence of God. We perpetually were kept from God. That's what Moses 6.49 says. And so the stage was set for someone to come and reintroduce light, to soften hearts, to awaken eyes, and to open ears. Let me ask you a question. Why does Satan attack our hearts, ears, and eyes? 
Why are those such symbolic references to our connection with heaven? I believe one of the reasons is because Satan knows that our hearts are the creative seats of our souls designed to help us create heaven here on earth. And it's also one of the reasons why God says that we need to be reborn into his kingdom. We need to regain our heavenly senses and become the better versions of ourselves through him. In Moses 6, verse 59, Christ instructs Enoch and says, you must be born again into the kingdom of heaven. We have to be born again, regain our heavenly senses. He says, you must be born again into the kingdom of heaven of water and of the spirit and be cleansed by blood, even the blood of mine only begotten, that ye might be sanctified from all sin and enjoy the words of eternal life in this world and eternal life in the world to come, even immortal glory. Being born again gives us access to what we had before and so much more. And then in verse 60, God instructs Enoch, for by water, you keep the commandment, the commandment of obedience. This is what we do when we're baptized. By the spirit, you're justified. As we follow the spirit, God justifies our actions and helps us. And by the blood of Christ, you're sanctified. This rebirth helps us become who we're meant to become and helps us build God's kingdom here on the earth. This process wasn't just for us or just those of us who struggle to be better versions of ourselves. It was for Enoch as well. And in Moses 6.31, when Christ calls Enoch to be a prophet of the Lord, Enoch trembles at that thought. He questions it. And it's because Enoch had to go through his own personal restoration. He had started to believe lies about himself that had violated his own understanding of who he really was. He questioned it and complained to God that he was, quote, but a lad. He was 65 years old at the time. He had just had his son, Methuselah. But Enoch felt like he was just a lad. Now, back then, people lived for a really long time, almost a thousand years. And so 60 years might feel like you were just a teenager or a young boy. But it was something that felt like it made it impossible for Enoch to be who he was meant to become. He also complained that he was slow of speech. And that he stumbled over his words, like Moses and sometimes like Joseph Smith complained. Who Joseph Smith felt like he was uneducated and not refined in speech. And Enoch also complained that all men hated Enoch. Enoch clearly had had some experiences as a preacher of righteousness, going about trying to do good things on that earth at that time. And he had internalized those experiences to mean he was incapable of speech because he was too young. And all men hated him. But when Christ called Enoch, Christ opened Enoch's heart with love and then poured in the truth to help him feel empowered and strengthened to do what he needed to do. Christ responded with beautiful truths. First, Christ explained that Enoch was known and loved and that Christ would protect him and that no man would pierce him. Christ promised to fill Enoch's mouth with power that mountains would flee before him, that rivers would turn their course away from him because of the power of Enoch's word. And that's in Moses chapter 6, verse 32 through 34. This power to create and destroy with speech, to be connected with Christ and walk with him, would 
envelop Enoch and, and charge him in a way that would overcome these worldly lies that he, that he had internalized about himself. What lies are you telling yourself about you and who you are? What lies are eclipsing your view of your relationship with Jesus Christ? The reason that's important is because we know, according to Brigham Young, that the greatest gift God grants his children is eternal life. He said the ability to, quote, preserve their identity, to preserve themselves before the Lord, end quote, that is God's greatest gift. Who we really are, who we were before we came to earth and who we're meant to become is the greatest gift that we can receive from God. And all of our identities are under attack, just like Enoch's. Enoch felt like his experiences defined him. All of us at times, it felt like our experiences have defined us. But Christ is here to liberate us from those lies and help us be our true selves. His love is the power that transcends, that lifts, that heals, and seals. Joseph Smith taught that until we have perfect love, we are liable to fall. But when we have a testimony that our names are sealed in the Lamb's Book of Life, we have perfect love. And then it is impossible for false Christ to deceive us. It's that's end quote. It's impossible for us to be deceived into believing that we're something that we're not or less than we're meant to become. Christ's love overcomes all wounds and heals and seals all pain away from us. It purifies it from us. Personal restoration, this idea of us becoming who we really are meant to become includes regaining our divine senses. Now, I just want to dwell on this idea of personal restoration for just a second. We know that the, the scriptures talk about the restoration of all things. And President Nelson has been talking about how he wants us to hear him. That process is a line upon line iterary process. It starts with us feeling Christ in our hearts, just like Enoch first started feeling Christ calling him. As we follow the promptings that we feel in our hearts, we eventually will actually be able to hear Christ calling to us and directing our paths and telling us what we should be doing. And we regain our, our ears until as we follow the promptings and repent and do what we can to become more like Christ, we will be able to see Christ. Like it says in DNC 93 verse one, this restorative path for us to regain our heavenly senses is something all of us can do as we try and come closer to Christ. He is calling to us, singing the song of redeeming love to us. And it's up to us to hear it until we can finally see him. When we finally feel, then hear, then see, we are empowered to speak in the name of the Lord. Let me walk you through this process because there are steps to removing the lies that Satan uses to eclipse our view of Christ. He is the healer. He's the redeemer, the, the deliverer, the restorer. And Satan doesn't want us to be connected. He doesn't want us to be able to feel or hear or see Christ. And so what happens is we have experiences. Someone cuts us off. A spouse is mean to us. Our parents ignore us or are upset with us or aren't proud with us. Maybe we don't get the job we wanted. Maybe we have a terrible experience with something we're trying to do. And Satan comes along to us and says, that means something about you. That means you're not good enough. That experience means that you're inferior, not loved, unimportant. And that experience can start to mean more than who we really are. It can start to eclipse our view of Christ because Christ teaches us 
that he is who defines us, not our experiences. So let me give you an example. My wife and I have taught many institute lessons over the years, and we've had the blessing and the opportunity to, to invite institute, to, institute students into our home to explore their life paths. We call it pathfinding. At that age, in those college years, people often have questions. They want to know who and what they're meant to become. We had one young man, I'll call him Chris, who came to our home and expressed sincere pain and sorrow over the fact that several years ago, he had been in a serious relationship, had been close to getting married, and had a discussion with his girlfriend at the time that he wanted to pursue a career in California instead of getting married at that time. The girlfriend broke up with him, went and married someone else several months later, and Chris had been defining himself, painstakingly reliving that experience over and over again for the past several years. So much so that it was damning him. It was preventing him from progressing on his life path. So we talked about it and we expressed sorrow with him that he felt like that experience was defining him. And then we asked him to help us understand the first time he remembered feeling that way, feeling like he was a failure, feeling like he had failed to live up to the potential or missed an opportunity. And he started to express that he had had an experience, several experiences as a child where he had felt his parents had told him that or taught him that he was inferior, not good enough. As he got more vulnerable and started to soften his heart and open up, we asked him what he was telling himself about that experience. And it's, it's very interesting, but what he, Chris ended up telling himself was that God did not love him because of those experiences with his parents and with others. As soon as he said that, as soon as he said, I feel like God doesn't love me. He clasped his hands over his mouth and realized the darkness of that lie. It was like he was able to identify a sliver that had been in his heart that had been hardening it ever since he was a child. And he was able to pull it out and have all this light gush out of him. And he started to awaken to the fact that God did love him. God knew who he was, that that lie was totally false and that he was meant to become not only a star in God's kingdom, but help create stars through the eternities with Christ. It changed everything for him. Removing that sliver, removing that uh, eclipsed experience, that experience that was eclipsing his view of the Savior, helped him reconnect with heaven and regain his confidence and his happiness and his peace. And I recently saw Chris, and he has obviously not lived a perfect life since then, but he's had so much an easier time understanding what his role is, what his connection is and value is. That personal progression, that restoration, that path is something all of us, all of us need to undergo. And we can do it every day. It's one of the most powerful tools we can learn. It really is repentance, understanding that our experiences don't define us. Christ defines us. And every experience is a gift to come closer to him. So here are the steps, just to kind of lay them out for you. Step number one, if you have a pain, a hatred or a sorrow, identify that experience. And that experience, you can tell yourself how you felt. I felt attacked, wounded, abused, ignored, marginalized, deceived, whatever it is, identify the experience and how you felt in that experience, what was happening to you. Then acknowledge your feelings. Because of what was happening to me, I felt angry, depressed, wounded, overwhelmed, upset, 
unseen, unloved, unwanted. Understanding how you felt is critical to understanding what you're telling yourself about the experience. Because what we tell ourselves creates around us. Have compassion on yourself is step three. I tell yourself that you can hear Christ saying in compassion about that experience. That must have been hard. That was painful. That was not okay. You're not crazy. It makes sense. I would feel that way too. That must have been hurtful or hard. Step four is after you have compassion, because your heart is open, step four would be to identify the lie, just like Chris did. As soon as he was able to identify what he was telling himself about that experience, all of a sudden it opened up the ability to reject that lie. Now, this is very important because Satan's really good at getting us to tell ourselves our own lies. As children of the creators, we have inherited the ability to create with our speech, especially the things we tell ourselves. And so no one can come up to you and tell you what the lie is that you've been telling yourself over and over, over again, what you've been repeating to yourself about your experiences. Only you know it because you're the one that's saying it to yourself. Maybe I'm not enough. I'm worthless. No one can love me. I'll always be alone. God hates me. I'm all alone, whatever it is. For me, at times, I've had the experience where I have felt like unless I work more, unless I do more, I'm not good enough. And that lie is so destructive. It leads us away from Christ, not to him. Once you can identify the lie and reject it, then you can speak truths to see Christ. For me, those truths were Christ defines my worth, period. Not my experiences not what I'm doing right now or I've done before. He is the one that heals. He is the one that loves. He knows how we feel and experiences do not define us and that we can find Christ in every experience because every experience is an invitation to know Christ, to look to him and live, to see him, doubt not and fear not. Every experience is a gift to come closer to him. So let's move on to section three the power of God's word, which revolves around this idea of our creative speech. Enoch teaches in Moses 6 verses 5 through 7 and verse 46 of the book of remembrance and how anyone who had a desire to do so could speak and write with their hearts in God's name. That's priesthood power. He also discusses in verses 34, 47, and 59 the creative and destructive powers of God's word. Enoch's power in the word was so incredible and brilliant and powerful that all men were offended and trembled in Enoch's presence. Remember how the angels used to tremble in the presence of Adam and Eve before they fell, and then Adam and Eve trembled in their presence? Well, Enoch could walk up to someone, and because he could see things as they were, because he was a seer, he could look them in the eye and say, I know who you are right now. And I can see how you're showing up. And I know who you were before. And I know what your potential is to become. And you need to shape up. Here's an opportunity for you to change and come closer to God. You're not living up to your full potential. You're seeking your own path instead of seeking God's path. It's very similar to what happened in 35, 7, verses 17 through 18, when Lehi and Nephi were so powerful in, the, in God's word that they could teach and preach. And the people became so upset because they could not disbelieve them. The power of their word was so powerful and so convincing. It was impossible to disbelieve them. All you could do was become angry at what they were saying. 
We know that Enoch also had the power to command mountains and rivers. And he was, it was as if he was empowered with wings at his back to ascend up to heaven and come back and teach the people and lions at his feet to defend him and protect him. The scriptures in, in Moroni, or excuse me, Moses 7 verse 13 talk about how lions roared at his presence. In many respects, Enoch became the world's first warrior prophet, fighting off giants, protecting Zion, helping people come to the community and helping raise it up to heaven. Enoch was awesome. And it's because of the power of the word of the Lord in him. It's because Enoch knew that he was Christ's and that all that mattered. That was all that mattered. We also know that Enoch was a scribe and recorded what happened and many other things during his time on the earth. He teaches again in Moses 6 verse 5, as many as called upon God to write by the spirit of inspiration could write in the book of remembrance. Enoch wasn't saying, hey, I'm the only one that gets to hold the pen. He was inviting all to be a part of the creative power of God's word and his priesthood. Enoch was referred to as the scribe of righteousness, capital R righteousness, meaning the scribe of Christ. Righteousness being another name of Christ. He sat at the foot of Adam in the valley of Adam on Diamon and recorded Adam's prophecies of that time until the end of the world. In DNC 107 verses 48 and 57, we learn that Enoch had this amazing opportunity and was able to see and learn so much at the feet of Adam and then go on to write many more books. Many suggest that, or some suggest that Enoch actually wrote up to 366 books regarding the heavens and the earth. And some of those can be found referenced in the forgotten books of Eden and the first book of Adam and Eve, which are apocryphal and pseudo-apocryphal, but still illustrative, like Joseph Smith says, if we can read them with the spirit. Joseph Smith prophesied that the book of Enoch would fulfill Isaiah's prophecy, that the knowledge of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the great deep to help build heaven on earth. Enoch is awesome. And Enoch is going to help us even today. His message was so powerful that it was designed to be shared with all who had eyes to see and ears to hear. Even though we have lost his books and many of his, his books need to be restored and will be restored to help us prepare the earth. Enoch's books contained or were preserved in symbols. And his message of Zion was preserved in the simple symbols of the circle and the square. The circle is often used as a symbol of heaven above or the dome of the eternities of the stars, like a round dome above the earth. That circle is referenced all throughout the scriptures. God sits behind a circling blazing throne of fire that God's eternal round or God is one, his path is one eternal round. That symbolism of the circle to describe God exists in many, many locations in the scriptures. That circle is also symbolized by the number three. The earth is represented by a square, the four corners of the earth, the four quarters of the earth, the four regions of the earth. Earth is universally utilized or uh, symbolized as a square, and it's represented by the number four. I've attached a number of scriptural references, 3 Nephi 5, 24 and 26, Ether 3, 11, DNC 45, 46, and many more scriptures talk about how the earth is symbolized by the number four or a square. 
when you add a circle plus a square, you are building Zion. And three plus four, what does that equal? Y equals seven. Enoch was the seventh son of Adam. A rainbow, which was given to Enoch, which we'll learn about in chapter seven of Moses seven. The rainbow has seven colors. There are so many references to the number seven. Seven is the symbol or the number of Zion. This symbol of a circle and a square intersecting is actually preserved or, or can be seen in the church's current logo with Christ standing with his hands out and the archway above him. If you draw a full circle through that archway, you can see the symbol of the circle or heaven. And you can also see beneath his hands, the symbol of the square. And as they intersect between his loving hands, you have Zion. Christ is seeking the reconciliation of heaven and earth. He's seeking the reconciliation of our hearts and our minds, men and women and light and darkness, the church and Christ, all of these things that oftentimes war against each other or resist each other are reconciled in Christ, the creator of heaven and earth. This symbol is also everywhere. If you look in the temples that we have throughout the United States and the world, you can see the interconnected circle and square. In Las Vegas, it's on the face of the Las Vegas temple inscribed around holiness to the Lord, the house of the Lord. It's a place where heaven and earth meet. This symbol, which we'll talk about at greater length in the next section, is also reverenced by many other religions. When I served my mission in Romania and Moldova, I had an interaction with a Moldovan priest in one of their chapels, an Orthodox chapel, uh, uh, church. And he told us that those chapels are oftentimes built with a square base and a circle dome above in very beautiful Eastern European style. He told us that that was a symbol of heaven and earth intersecting and that the church was designed to be a place where men could commune with heaven above, just like our temples. This is Enoch's calling card, his seal, the Enoch seal of heaven and earth intersecting in a circle and a square. Next week, we'll talk about Enoch and Zion and how he raised it to the heavens, literally by the foundations. We'll also learn more about Enoch and the tools to see Christ in every experience and how we can also, each of us, obtain our personal restorative awakening in Christ and unite our hearts together with Christ and with each other to build Zion here on the earth. I know that Christ wants to help us become the best versions of ourselves, that he knows us as we really are, that one day we will see him as he is, and we will see as we are seen and know as we are known. That is the power of the restoration. The restoration isn't just about the gospel. It's about me and you, us being restored to who we were before, enhanced and extended by this earthly experience because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. I know that Christ loves us, that he wants us to become like him, and that he is calling to us. And as we join our hearts and hands together, we will sing the song of redeeming love and rise as Zion. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brought to you by Cedar Fort Publishing and Media.